Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the previous episode, I spoke with Nate Bayer, Managing Director and Partner at BCG Healthcare, and we dove into many topics around digital therapeutics. What I loved about that conversation is that we got a bird's eye view across BCG's customer base. Today, I speak with Seth Feuerstein, founder and CEO of We Therapeutics, a digital therapeutic company that recently came out of stealth. In their own words, We is purpose-built to tackle suicide and other challenging healthcare problems. But before we dive in, I was introduced to Seth through our gracious sponsor, Linda's Health. Seth and I both felt like we have known each other for years, even though the first time we met was few days before the actual recording of the episode. Seth and team are doing very important work, and I'm looking forward to seeing them grow and staying in touch. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Seth. Seth, welcome to the DTX podcast. I know we got very recently introduced, and I think both of us know many people in the industry, especially digital therapeutics world, is still small and growing. And I think we're both surprised that we haven't run across each other. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, looking forward to getting to know you more and we, which is your company. And please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and don't forget about one interesting small fact. That's what we like to hear. Well, it's great to be here, Eugene. Thanks for the work you do highlighting the field. And I also was surprised we had never crossed paths. Although I guess with a couple of years of COVID, less travel, less personal interaction, and we were hard at work. So weren't spending a ton of time out there shaking hands. I have kind of a weird background, both generally and I guess for somebody who started <laughs> these companies and runs one. I studied medicine and law. I completed my training at Yale University, and I've been on the faculty at Yale in the Department of Psychiatry for almost 20 years now, and actually still have a program grant from the NIH there. But I've mostly been an entrepreneur for about 16, 17 years now, increasingly less academic and more entrepreneurial. I started my first digital therapy company in 2009, and we did actually quite well. We scaled a variety of digital CBT programs, which is now fairly common, but we went to market actually the same year that the iPhone came out. So we had things on DVD-ROM, and it was a very different time to payers and the government about it. But we had programs for depression and anxiety and insomnia and substance use and OCD. And we eventually scaled those to about 100 million benefit lives. That was acquired by a national health insurer. And I became the chief innovation and chief medical officer there. And I also spent time, I have a role at the Department of Defense, advise some funds and sit on a few boards. And all in 24 hours a day. Let's not forget about, I think, again, I keep saying to many of the folks on the podcast that all of the introductions are interest facts, but we do want to pick one that really stands out for you. Yeah, I think an interesting personal fact, so non-work fact is, and I don't know if anyone on my team really knows this, but I actually was diagnosed around the time I started the first digital therapeutics company with an extremely rare condition. And I was told had somewhere from a couple of months to a couple of years to live. I had two young children at the time and married. Now I have two older children <laughs> and I'm married to the same person. And it turned out, we thought that was the diagnosis for about a year. There were no treatments, but almost a year afterwards, the diagnosis was changed. I ended up in treatment at a Memorial Sloan Kettering. And that very much changed 
my view. I think I was always tried to be a thoughtful and empathic clinician and entrepreneur, but I think that really changed the way I prioritized what to spend my time on and how to spend that time. We called it the year of living Shiva, actually. In Judaism, you go to a home after someone has died and people would come to our home under the assumption that I would soon die. And so it was this weird kind of time to really deeply connect with the people that mattered the most. And it really changed a lot and shaped the way I think about my work. Ted, thank you very much for sharing such a personal story and uh, glad to be speaking to you here. Let's get to we and my assumption going into this on the pronunciation that it was the French we, even though as an American company, I thought maybe it's owie. <laughs> and so we'd love to hear a little bit more about the origin, the trigger to start we, maybe even a little bit about the branding and the thinking process of we, and as you're sort of coming out of the stealth mode, which is a whole other topic here. Yeah. So I've had the chance to name companies before and learned early on in that process that you do have to find a name that's available. In healthcare, a lot of names are taken. That's always a good start. Yeah. So that's always a good start. So, you know, there were many names that I considered and discussed with friends and colleagues that were non-starters because they were chosen. When I started thinking about the French word for yes, there were a few aspects of it, which might come across as corny, but they're true, which is that I wanted a word that was positive. And we... I think universally people know that we means yes. And we were going to be trying to attempt things that I think people generally hear that we're doing and are somewhat surprised that you can do it and would do it, which are distinct but related. But I think generally people are like, wow, are you planning to do that? And so we wanted a positive word. But I also wanted a word that was easy to remember and short, and we fits that bill. And then phonetically, I liked that it's the word we, like together. And the way we've thought about how we're going to significantly impact the diseases we are focused on was that you can't do it alone, either as an entrepreneur or even as a single company. You need to think about how do you bring in all of the relevant stakeholders because digital therapeutics is hard. Any new business is hard. Digital therapeutics is especially hard. And the things we're trying to tackle, in generally speaking, there are no solutions for them to a large extent. And so I felt like that was a potential extra risk and barrier and wanted to make sure we brought all the stakeholders together and that phonetic pronunciation was relevant as well. Love it. Very thoughtful process. And uh, I actually, the whole we, because I think we've been talking about and forget about digital, just in healthcare, all the entities and the value chain and all the players, the only way we all can succeed is if we all work together. So love that. Let's dive one level deeper. You guys came out of stealth. I'm sure the company was in development prior to that. Maybe if you can kind of rewind back on, again, from the start, when you guys got started, that journey to opening the doors out of the stealth mode and some of the funding journey history along that way. Oh, sure. So I think there's probably two ways to think about the journey to this company starting and being where we are today. One is sort of happy coincidence. I actually didn't go to medical school intending to be a psychiatrist. I won't get into how that happened, but I ended up doing that 
which was sort of a happy accident. And I'm a psychopharmacologist, which I'm basically a prescriber by background. Yale has got a huge psychopharmacology research base and program. So I'm very pro-medication for the right patients, but I got really interested in software to help leverage non-pharmacologic treatments. And that's what sent me down that first digital therapy company pathway. And that went quite well, both in terms of our impact and financial return. And so then I ended up as an accidental software architect and then an accidental software salesman and an accidental health insurance executive. And then some of what I learned that acquirer, I ended up in a really great role with really great people. That health insurer had a pharmacy benefit management company. And I had the accidental good fortune to actually work with Pair Therapeutics. And we implemented, just as they were getting approved, we implemented the first workflow to figure out how to give an NDC code to a digital therapeutic, how to distribute it. So I had a really good, but sort of accidental pathway to understanding a lot about the field. Of course, my work was over the counter and not FDA way back more than a decade ago. But then with Pear being really a pioneer, I was able to track what they were doing from the other side and also get a deep understanding of reimbursement. So I sat on reimbursement committees and issued opinions, not just for us. We worked with a lot of health plans. And so I really got an understanding of what happened inside a health plan. And then I read a paper in 2015, which was about a year after my company was acquired, around suicide. And it fundamentally changed the way I thought about suicide. Like most people, including mental health clinicians, psychiatrists, social workers, psychologists, the natural reaction was to associate suicide with depression. But the paper not only shifted that for me and made me think of it more as an independent disease category, it also showed you could reduce deadly events by more than half. And by the way, I knew you could never scale what was in the paper. It never happened. So I had sort of accidentally done software work to scale digital therapeutics, accidentally sat in all these chairs. And I spent about two and a half years thinking about how it would have to be to align the interests of the patients, the providers, and the payers, and actually achieve reduction in death and deadly events. And part of that was the FDA creating a pathway and deciding that, okay, now I don't think clinicians would or should responsibly prescribe something for this deadly thing that was not approved by the FDA. And that's really what led us down starting it as a trigger. For about two years, I was meeting with leading suicide researchers in the United States. And I also felt like going back to what we said about, we have to do this together. This needed to be more like a biotech where we had multiple scientific co-founders all aligned on a single truth because it's such an important topic. We really wanted alignment. And so that was a big part of what went on in parallel in the background. And that takes us to the funding piece. I was able, while I was at that health insurer and also leaving, join a bunch of boards in digital health, get novel reimbursement across some pretty large scale companies like Talkspace and others. And so now I had a better understanding of the funding landscape on the venture capital side. And I decided that it was really important to have world-class technical skills. We had very good software at the previous work I did, but I really wanted the best and I was really fortunate to get introduced to First Round Capital, whose bread and butter is really in software-driven businesses. We developed a really good collaborative relationship early on. They became our initial seed investor and introduced me to exceptional talent, which was really important. I didn't think anything but the best would be appropriate for these patients and this problem. It's a very hard problem to solve. Very hard problem to solve. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Seth Feuerstein. 
founder and CEO of We Therapeutics. Let's fast forward through why do stealth? Many startups just announce their seed round and open the doors and et cetera. Just curious on your thinking around it. I think there are multiple variables. Part of our thinking was, I think a lot of people want press because it attracts attention and investors and they're out there trying to market and sell and partner. I think we were in a good place where we have, I'm old. <laughs> I mean, compared to most of the people in tech and health, I'm older. And so I think I have good relationships and people I can go to, to get their feedback or to discuss things. That was one reason was I don't, didn't feel we needed the attention to accomplish anything. And we all agreed on that. I think another was we had a lot of work to do and press and news. It might not take a ton of time, but any time taken away from the actual work we were doing, we felt was a bit of a distraction. And lastly, we were the kind of the only people working on this. And so we could just do it. We could do it well and didn't want to have the push and the pull of third parties trying to tell us to do it differently because we had great advisors. Not that we knew everything perfectly, but we just had a lot to execute on and didn't want to have a lot of inbound distraction. Maybe as you guys are tackling a digital therapeutic for suicide prevention, what are some current options? Maybe enlighten our listeners. What is out there today? So suicide, one of the ways I like to describe suicide is to think about it sort of in the framework of suicide attempts. Suicide attempts are potentially deadly events. So you can think about them similarly to a cardiac arrhythmia or a cancer recurrence. These are potentially deadly events in healthcare. Like when they happen, it could lead to death. And I'm saying this to sort of break up suicide into different pieces. There's the sort of general prevention. And if you think of something like skin cancer, like staying out of the sun. So suicide, like other deadly health conditions, there are genetic predisposing sort of family and genetics. There's things that occur in your life that can increase your risk. In skin cancer, we know that exposure to radiation is one of those things. In suicide, one of the challenges is it's a little bit different for everyone. We do know that some diseases increase the risk. So major depressive disorder, if you have schizophrenia, if you have bipolar one, if you have a cancer diagnosis, many different health conditions increase the blunt trauma on the brain and then increase the likelihood of becoming suicidal. But the suicide mode itself is this sort of relatively spontaneous state at risk of sudden death. So on the front end, there are certain conditions we know increase the risk. And if you have those being aware of the increased risk of suicide is important. I think people with depression already know that because it's talked about widely. A lot of people with schizophrenia and bipolar don't actually know they're at increased risk for suicide. And a lot of clinicians don't know that those patients are at increased risk. And I think a lot of oncologists know that their patients are at increased risk of suicide attempts and death, but they don't focus on it because they're so focused on the primary condition. I will say when I was in treatment after my diagnosis was changed, I was at Sloan Kettering that has a phenomenal psych onc program and they made us sit with social workers. And it was really valuable actually for us at the time. Once you know you're at risk of suicide, meaning you've had suicidal thinking or had a suicide attempt, there are interventions that can be effective at reducing future risk, but they're extremely hard to get access to. There's very few clinicians that know how to do them and do them well. And they tend to be at academic medical centers, more focused on research than patient care. In some ways, those interventions are like a subspecialty. But there are experts at a half dozen academic institutions and some of their trainees are out there and can in fact 
provide interventions, but they're hard to get and there's not a lot of people that do it. No medications really are available. Clozapine is approved for people with schizophrenia to reduce their risk. And then the well-known suicide prevention lifeline, which is just switched over to 988 in the United States, is an invaluable resource, which is now getting a lot more funding, which is a great thing. It's important to remember this is a crisis tool. It's important in the moment, but not necessarily helpful down the road in reducing an attempt that can happen a year or two or 10 years later. Once you've been suicidal, you're always at risk. And that way, it's a lot like a cardiac arrhythmia or cancer diagnosis. Thank you for describing that. And speaking about all of this, can you kind of break this down? What is a digital therapeutic for suicide looks like? How would one know to even use we when you potentially having suicidal tendencies? What is that patient experience? And I don't want to even call it an experience, to be honest, to a certain extent. <laughs> you can call it an experience. At the end of the day, across healthcare, behavior is more important than drugs for the most part. Like we do have drugs now that cure things. Antibiotics, right? They eliminate infections for people. Certain cancer drugs now are phenomenally targeted and they can lead to cures. But generally speaking, if you look at heart disease, where we've had a huge impact, your behavior, your experience as a patient is far more important than whether you take Lipitor in terms of your survival. If you have terrible exercise and eating habits, you can take all the Lipitor you want. You're still going to die earlier. If you smoke, same kind of thing. So it's fine to call it an experience. What we've done is with the leading researchers, taken what is known to work most efficiently and effectively to reduce future deadly events and packaged it into a couple of months of interactive experience. And the patient goes through with really good fidelity to what we know works. In that way, it's not unlike some other digital therapeutics. We've had the luxury of outstanding design and technical experts in helping translate as well as a group of several leading academics who, while on the one hand have been academic competitors, have agreed together, like, here is really what will work best for most patients. And so we've created a singular interactive experience to be prescribed by a clinician for use by the patient as a standalone addition to their care. I'll say one other thing, which is that it's important because today, we don't offer things that reduce suicide risk to patients. So we hospitalize them. We don't really do anything for them while they're inpatients. The average length of stay is only eight to 10 days in most of the US. Their view is that they wanna stabilize people and discharge them, but actually the highest risk period for an attempt is in the couple of months after discharge. Let's talk about FDA and evidence. I think FDA is still learning about digital therapies. And of course, as we just been talking about, suicide prevention is probably one of the most risky decisions that FDA needs to make around approvals. And I'm not saying the only risky one, but I think many of them are and most of them are. But talk to us about complexity of clinical trials and that evidence generation when it comes to such a vulnerable population. Yeah. And it's funny, we sought insight on this, not just from experts who had brought digital products through the FDA. I had some experience with that, but not as much as others. So we brought in consultants who had worked on multiple products through the FDA. We also brought in investors who really understood therapeutics. So it was really important in addition to first round to bring in investors like Flare Capital and Polaris, who had had a lot of digital health and a lot of FDA experience, and ultimately also a pharmaceutical company and the largest PBM, CVS Health. We wanted all of them involved because that was really important to make sure we had every perspective from a regulatory and distribution perspective as to what might be risks and what might de-risk getting this into the hands of patients in the right way. 
and providers. You know, providers are also very uncomfortable with suicidal patients and want more tools. So we took the path of meeting with the agency. We believe it should be regulated by the FDA. For those who are really well-versed in the FDA and digital therapeutics, you'll know that the FDA issued guidance at the beginning of COVID, largely opening up digital therapeutics to be prescribed without clearance. But there was one clear exception in their waiver, and that exception was for suicide. They talked about things like suicide interventions, and we were already talking to the agency, and I think they recognized that this was different. And so one of the things that we were supportive of and requested was whether or not they felt we needed an investigational device exemption. And I think as far as I know, we're the only digital therapeutic that the FDA requires that for, which is, I think, appropriately unique in terms of what we're trying to do. And we like that extra communication that it requires with the agency and its recognition of the importance and intensity of the work we're doing on the therapeutic side. You know, dealing with deadly conditions on the drug side is common. And then in the pacemaker world, it's not unusual to deal with patients at risk of death at the agency, but for digital therapeutics, what we were doing was somewhat different, of course. So we take it seriously. The flip side is we don't view it as having more risk. We view it as having more opportunity. Right now, these patients don't get really anything that reduces their risk of an attempt or a death. And so any improvement we can make in that, we view as a huge rewarding sort of opportunity to make a difference. And I think the agency agrees with us. Like we all are thoughtful and transparent, but recognize that we can make a big impact if this works. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my clinical and commercial partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the chief medical officer and general manager of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Seth. Will Aoi's suicide digital therapeutic be the first public health DTX? And do you think it'll substitute helplines? Ah, uh, thanks, Chandana. Public health is a tricky term. I think lots of the digital therapeutics out there aim to impact public health in a certain way. I think as far as I know, it'll be the first DTX to target a deadly condition that has no other generally applicable prescription product. That I think is a fundamental difference. We don't view it as being used incredibly broadly. We really view it as being used by people we know are at risk of having an attempt in the future. And so from that perspective, suicide attempts and suicidal ideation are more common than most people think. Suicide is the number two cause of death in the United States in people in their teens and 20s. It's the number four cause of death in people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it skews very young. And so from a public health perspective, I think the impact can be extremely large in terms of number of life years we could potentially de-risk and save. But in terms of it being something everyone uses in school systems, I think there are other campaigns underway related to suicide that are really important and we would never displace. Similarly, with 988 and the crisis line, to me, they're a partner. We don't displace them. It's a place where people can get connected to resources. The truth is, I don't think many people know this, the toughest thing that the crisis line has to do is try to connect people with care after they call. That's actually the hardest thing. And so hopefully, once tools like ours are available by prescription, it'll be a lot easier to find providers who want to take those patients. 
And I'm going to hop in here as we talk about public health. I do want to bring the commercialization strategy and your go-to-market. And assuming this is a prescription digital therapeutic, how are you thinking about scaling the company and your go-to-market hypothesis? Yeah, it's a prescription digital therapeutic for sure. Anyone who's at risk, if you're listening to this, if you know anyone at risk, they should be in the care of a clinician. I do envision a day when we may, in fact, make it available as a standalone, you know, after some additional work, because there may be some people who are unwilling to come forward and might access it. And so we'd have to think about what that means. But I think that's something we need to consider seriously if, if in fact, there are people who won't come forward once it is FDA cleared. I think I mentioned earlier, I did, in fact, have a C-suite job at a national health insurer that had a pharmacy benefit manager. I'm not sure all digital therapeutics or ours will only be covered under the pharmacy benefit, but I think everyone understands prescription benefits traditionally have been covered under the PBM. I made friendships. I get along with my colleagues generally. And so I was able to get what we call in healthcare curbside opinions from them. And universally, they said like, yeah, we'd have to cover that. And we'd work with you to figure it out. It's a real problem. But nevertheless, actions speak louder than words. So I think it was really important to approach CVS and we did. And they did serious diligence with us and decided that they agreed. And so they've been a wonderful collaborator. So we're already spending time working through commercialization, distribution channels. We're in a little bit of a different position than some other digital therapeutics where some of our partners want us to figure out as many channels as possible for distribution because they don't want to leave any patient in a position where they can't access it. So we're trying to understand the best ways to get it into the most hands as possible and then how to optimize value for our payer partners. I think once the data is out, under the assumption the studies are successful, I think patients and providers will see the value. The good news is payers are seeing the value in our conversations with them, and there's a lot of value to unlock for them. And so we are exploring that, we are working on it, and we've been really excited by the positive reaction to what we're doing. And just out of curiosity, and again, I'm not asking you to quote any actual numbers, but how are you guys thinking about pricing? Well, I'll say this. On the one hand, you could look at oncology, where there are drugs that prevent deadly recurrence, and those price at extremely high prices. We don't intend to go to the extremes that you see in the oncology market. The good news is we also have a study that looks at what happens when you reduce attempts that was independently done based on some of the preliminary foundational work for our digital therapeutic that shows savings of at least $16,000 per patient who gets the intervention. And that's because we're targeting really expensive problems. Instinctively, by the way, some listeners may think, well, oh, suicide's not expensive because people die. To me, that's a depressing way to think about it. And I don't like that way of thinking about it, but I could see why some people might think health insurers might think about it that way. The good news is we found they don't necessarily think about it that way. If you can save lives, that has real value. The good news is preventing suicide attempts and the cost of care associated with suicide actually saves a lot of money. So I think everything is aligned. That study showed 16,000 minimum savings. When you consider there's approximately a million and a half attempters that are known in the U.S. every year, approximately 15 million ideators. That gives us a lot of room for an extremely robust business enterprise with extremely robust clinical outcome improvement. And to us, that's like perfect Venn diagram for the situation. And a worthy mission. So I'm going to add to that. As we come into an end here, I always ask the question of what advice would you give? And as you described your background and so many different 
sides of your brain and switching the hat. I think I'm going to go even broader and I would actually ask you, what advice would you give to digital therapeutic, let's call it industry as a whole? And I know that's probably pretty broad, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think that for really anyone listening to this, I would assume is in the digital therapeutics industry. I think there's two intertwined to one comment I would make, which is find something where there's opportunity where you're passionate about it and there's opportunity to make a large leap rather than an incremental improvement in that area. I think when we look at, at areas where technology has made a huge shift in the landscape or when we look at the therapeutics world. So if you go back to biotech, if you go back to targeted therapeutics, there were large leaps in terms of what those companies did that laid the foundation for those industries. Incremental improvement wouldn't have made Genentech, Amgen, and Biogen what they were. It was going for something that was significant in terms of the impact it had. If you're like, for instance, at a big pharma, it's easy to think incrementally around digital therapeutics, but what's going to create an entirely new business line for you is something that is a fundamental game changer for patients. And that's going to be true whether you're founding a digital therapeutics company, whether you're a clinician working at a digital therapeutics company, whether you're an investor interested in digital therapeutics Things that make a big difference are the ones that end up creating platforms and entirely new industries from my perspective. Love it. They're also easier to be passionate about working on. Absolutely. Uh, though it takes different type of people to come together and neither one is good, bad, or indifferent, right? But it just takes a different people. Actually, the last one, right? And I have a feeling on your answer, as I always hypothesize with every guest on this, but what gets you, Seth, up in the morning? Wow. When you said you thought you knew the answer, I thought it was going to be a binary question. So you had a 50% chance like a yes, no. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I wouldn't have guessed that one, but go ahead. I mean, I love my work, but each day is different. Like I've learned, I've been blindsided in ways, you know, I mentioned one of them at the very beginning around my own health. I guess one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is every day is different. Today, I was getting up to do a really interesting podcast. That's not something I normally do. Thank you. Yeah. That was the thing that like got me excited this morning and to test out the equipment and all that other stuff. And so clearly my work is great, but family, colleagues, friends, all of it. I'm a weird person because like I grew up in a, an unusual family and I have unusual colleagues. And so I think I'm given the flexibility. I'm a lucky person to sort of every day you'll see what comes, you know? Seth, I love your answer and your comment of weird. I always said to my kids very early in their age that I think everybody is weird. We just all have different levels of it, right? We're on the spectrum of what do we disclose. So <laughs> I appreciate your honesty and transparency and openness and was really a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Really great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.